Chapters twenty three and twenty four of the Curved Blades by Carolyn Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Twenty three. Two Wills. For a few days, Loria stayed in Cairo and devoted all his time to the amusement and entertainment of Pauline. Together they visited the Sphinx and the Great Pyramids. Together they made trips to Old Cairo and to the ostrich farm. Together they saw the little petrified forest. But the immediate sights of Cairo, the tombs, mosques, and bazaars, Loria told her, she could visit with Mrs. MacDonald or with their dragoman after he and Irie had gone on their trip up the Nile. Pauline was happy. At Carr's request she had endeavored to put out of her mind the horror she had been through. Frightened at the suspicions directed toward herself, fearing that she could not successfully combat them, and for another reason she had fled to Egypt and her cousin's protection. This other reason she had almost dismissed from her mind, and she gave herself up to the enjoyment of the novelty and interest of her present situation. After their sightseeing each day, they returned for tea on the terrace at Shepherd's or went to Gezira Palace for it, or to the house of some friend. Dinner was always a pleasant affair, and they had frequent guests and were often invited out. As Pauline was wearing mourning, no large social affairs were attended, and under Mrs. MacDonald's guidance the girl pursued her happy way. Nearly a week after Pauline's arrival, Loria told her that the next day he must leave her and go up to the Nile to attend to his work there. They were in the sitting-room of Pauline's pleasant suite at the hotel, and Mrs. MacDonald promised to cherish most carefully her charge in Loria's absence. "'How long shall you be away, Carr?' asked Pauline. "'It's uncertain, Polly. Perhaps only a few days this time, perhaps a week. I'll be back and forth, you know, and you're bound to find enough to interest you.' Keep me advised of any news from America. You can always reach me by mail or wire or telephone if need be. And here's another matter, Pauline. You know, this work I'm up against is more or less dangerous. Dangerous how? Well, there's blasting and danger of cave-ins and such matters. But don't feel alarmed. I'll probably come through all right. Only I want to make my will, so if anything should happen, you'll be my heir without any fuss about it. Oh, don't talk about such things, Carr. You frighten me. Nonsense. Don't take it like that. Now, see here. You know my way. Touch and go is my motto. So I've asked a lawyer chap to come here tonight and fix up things. Suppose you make your will, too. Then it will seem more like a business matter, and not as if either of us expects to die soon. Who's your heir to be, Polly? Why, I don't know. I've never thought about it. But you ought to. You see, now you're some heiress, and it isn't right not to have a will made, on general principles. To be sure, you may marry. Oh, I don't think I ever will, Carr. Nonsense, Polly Pops, of course you will. But you must take your time and select a good chappy. Now, how does this strike you? Jeffrey's my lawyer is coming here right away. Suppose we each make a will, leaving all our worldly goods to each other. Then later, when you decide on your life mate, you can change and rearrange as you like. But I haven't any fortune yet. Aunt Lucy's estate isn't all settled, is it? No matter about that. It will be in course of time. I have every confidence in Haviland. He's as honest a chap as ever breathed. He'll fix up all our interests over there in apple pie order and don't you forget it. Humor me in this thing, Polly, and believe I know more of business affairs than you do, and it's best to do as I say. 
Pauline was easily persuaded, and as the arrangement was conceded to be merely temporary, she agreed. Jeffreys came. The two wills were drawn, signed, and witnessed, all in correct form. Loria and his bequeathed to Pauline all he might die possessed of, and except for a few charities and minor bequests, Pauline left her fortune to Carr. The business was soon over, and Loria took both documents, saying he would put them in his safe deposit box for the present, as Pauline had no place for valuable papers. The next day Loria, accompanied by the invaluable Ari, went away to the site of his projected enterprise. This affair was conducted with such strict secrecy that even the location was not known to many. Actual work had not yet been begun, but negotiations and preparations of vast importance were being made, and secret conclaves were held by those most interested. Pauline had been emphatically adjured to give not the least hint to anyone whatever of the project, and she had promised faithfully to obey Carr's injunctions. The next afternoon, a telegram from Flemingstone announced his arrival at Alexandria and his immediate appearance in Cairo. Addressed to her in Loria's care, Pauline received it duly, for her mail was brought to her at Shepherd's, and cars forwarded to him wherever he might be. She had had a cable from Haviland, but no American letters had yet reached her. Stone, having sailed just a week after Pauline's departure from New York, was arriving eight days after her own advent at Cairo. The girl's first emotion was of joy. The thought of seeing Stone again eclipsed all other thoughts. "'Oh, Mrs. Mack!' she cried, clasping that somewhat rotund matron round the waist and leading her an enforced dance. "'Mr. Stone is coming. We'll be here for tea. Oh, I am so glad!' But her second thoughts were more disturbing. Why was he coming? What were his suspicions? Could he be tracking her down? Though Fleming Stone had never said a word of love to her, Polly knew by her own heart's detective instinct that he cared. But his sense of duty might make it necessary to follow where the trail of suspicion led, even at cost of his own affections. Then, too, could he suspect... But Pauline's irrepressible joy at thought of seeing him left her little time or wish to indulge in gloomy forebodings. Singing, she ran off to dress for Stone's reception. "'Which is prettier?' she asked of Mrs. Mack, holding up an embroidered white crepe of Cairo construction and a black net gown brought from New York. "'Wear the white, Miss Stewart. It's most becoming to you.' It was, and when arrayed in the lovely, soft, clinging affair with a cluster of tiny white rosebuds at her belt, Pauline's unusually pink cheeks and her scarlet flower of a mouth gave all the color necessary. Her beautiful hair, piled in a crown atop her little head, was held by a carved ivory comb, and beneath their half-drooped lashes her great eyes shone like stars. For the terrace she donned a large white hat with black ostrich plumes, and flinging a white cape edged with black fur over her arm she descended to meet her guest. Though little given to emotional demonstration, Fleming Stone caught his breath with a quick gasp at sight of her, and advanced with outstretched hands and a smile of a sort no one had ever before seen on that always calm face. "'How do you do?' she said, smiling, for though thrilled herself, she remembered the unfailing curiosity of the terrace crowds. But Stone, having taken her two hands in his, stood looking at her as if he intended to pursue that occupation for the rest of his natural life. "'Sit down,' she said, laughing a little nervously under his gaze. "'This is our table. Will you have tea?' "'Tea, of course.' And at last Fleming Stone took himself in hand and behaved like a reasonable citizen. "'And how are you?' 
And your cousin, where is he? Mr. Loria is out of Cairo just now, and Pauline turned to give the waiter his order. But we are three, as I am under most strict surveillance, she paused, realizing what that phrase meant to a detective. Of a perfect dragon of a chaperone, she continued bravely, trying to control her quivering lip. Here she comes now. The appearance and introduction of Mrs. MacDonald gave Pauline time to regain her poise, and a glance of pathetic appeal to Stone made him take up the burden of conversation for a few moments. And then, with the arrival of the tea, the chat became gayer, and of course impersonal. The Englishman Pitts appeared, indeed he inevitably appeared when Pauline was on the terrace, and joined the group without invitation. It was not Fleming Stone's first visit to Egypt, and he noted with interest the changes, and looked with gladness on things unchanged as the kaleidoscopic scene whirled about him. Later they all went up to Pauline's sitting-room and viewed the street pageant from second-story windows. And then Mrs. MacDonald, after a short and losing battle, between her conventions and her kind-heartedness, insisted that Mr. Pitts must take her across the street to buy some imperatively necessary writing-paper. Outwardly courteous, but inwardly of a rampageous unwillingness, Mr. Pitts acquiesced in her scheme, and Flemingstone politely closed the door behind them. He turned to see Pauline looking at him with a gaze frightened, but, yes, surely, welcoming, and not waiting to analyze the intent of the gaze more deeply, Stone took a chance, and in another instant held her in his arms so closely that the intent of her glance was of little importance to anybody. Pauline, he breathed. How I love you. My darling. Mine. No, no, don't speak. And he laid his fingertips on her parted lips. Just look at me, and so tell me. The wonderful eyes raised themselves to his, and Stone's phenomenal insight was not necessary for him to read the message they held. You do love me, he whispered. Oh, my little girl. And after a long, silent embrace, he cried jubilantly. Now tell me, now tell me in words, in words, Pauline, that you do. Unhesitatingly, without shyness, Pauline, radiant-faced, whispered, I love you, dear, and the vibrant tones filled the simple words to the brim of assurance. Though it seemed to them but a moment, it was some time later that Mrs. MacDonald's tap sounded on the door. Come, cried Pauline, springing away from Stone's side while he sauntered to the window. Oh, Mrs. MacDonald, you must know it at once. Mr. Stone is my fiancé. Mrs. Mack was duly surprised and delighted, and after congratulations sent Stone away to dress for dinner and endeavored to calm down her emotional charge. Later that evening Stone and Pauline sat in the hall watching the people. Almost as much alone as on a desert island, they conversed in low tones, and Stone, between expressions of adoration, told her of his theory of the beauty charm. With paling face, Pauline listened. Who? she whispered. Who? Do you suspect anybody? You don't know of your aunt ever having consulted any beauty doctor or any such person? Oh, no, I'm sure she never did. Never. And you don't know of anyone who would give her poison under pretense of its being a charm or beautifier? Oh, don't, don't ask me. And with a face white as ashes, Pauline rose from her chair. You must excuse me, Mr. Stone. I am ill. I don't feel well. Really, I must beg to be excused. Almost before he realized what she was doing, Pauline had left him, glided to the elevator, and he heard the door of the cage clang too, even as he followed her. 
Poor child, he said to himself. Poor dear little girl. And going in quest of Mrs. MacDonald, he asked her to go to Pauline. You will perhaps find her greatly disturbed, he said, but I assure you it is nothing that can be avoided or remedied. Please, Mrs. MacDonald, just try to comfort and cheer her without asking the cause of her sadness. After a straightforward look into Stone's eyes, which was as frankly returned, Mrs. MacDonald nodded her head and hastened away. As Stone had predicted, she found Pauline sobbing hysterically. "'What is it, dear?' she queried. "'Tell Mrs. Mac. Or if you'd rather not, at least tell me what I can do for you. Don't, don't cry so.' But no words could she get from the sobbing girl except an insistent demand for a telegraph blank. This was provided, and Pauline wrote a message to Carloria, telling him that Fleming Stone had come to Cairo. This she ordered dispatched at once. Then she begged Mrs. MacDonald to leave her, as she wished to go to bed and try to forget her troubles in sleep. Meantime, Fleming Stone left the hotel and proceeded straight to Carloria's rooms. He expressed surprise when the janitor informed him of Mr. Loria's absence. "'Well, never mind,' he said. "'He'll be back in a few days.' but I'll just go in and write a note and leave it on his desk for him. The janitor hesitated, but after a transference of some coin of the realm was effected, he cheerfully unlocked the door and Stone found himself in Loria's apartment. It was a comfortable place, even luxurious in a mannish way, and the detective looked about with interest. As he had proposed, he went to the writing table and, taking a sheet of paper from the rack, wrote a short note but instead of leaving it he put it in his jacket pocket, saying to the watchful janitor that perhaps it would be better to mail it. Then he stepped into Loria's bedroom, but so quickly did he step out again that the janitor hadn't time to reprove or forbid him. All right, he said as he started to leave. When Mr. Loria returns you can tell him I called. This permission went far to allay the janitor's fears that he had been indiscreet, for Carl Loria was not a man who brooked interference with his affairs or belongings. 24. Confession Carloria was at Helwan when he received Pauline's telegram. For a few moments he studied it, and then going to a hotel office, he possessed himself of a telegram blank which he proceeded to write on by the use of a typewriter nearby. With a preoccupied look on his face, as if thinking deeply, he called Ari and gave him a long and careful list of directions and it was in pursuance of these directions that the Arab presented himself at Shepherd's at ten o'clock in the morning and asked for Miss Stewart. "'What is it, Ari?' asked Pauline as she received the dragoman in her sitting-room. "'Miss Stewart,' and the Arab was deeply respectful, "'Mr. Loria begs that you go with me to Sakara to visit the pyramids and necropolis.' "'Now?' said Pauline in surprise. "'Yes, my lady.' "'Yes, my lady.' Mr. Loria will himself meet you at the station. Will you start at once, please? But I am expecting a caller, Mr. Stone. Pardon, but Mr. Loria said if you hesitated for any reason to implore you to go with me quickly and he will explain all. Pauline paled a little, but she said simply, Very well, Ari, I will go at once. Escorted by the silent, majestic-mannered Arab, Pauline was taken through the crowded streets to the station, and they boarded a train just as it was leaving. "'We did get the train, Miss Stewart,' said Ari, with a sad smile. "'Mr. Loria would be greatly mad if we had missed it.' "'Yes.' Pauline nodded at him, her thoughts full of the spoiled day which she had hoped to spend with Stone. Yet she longed to see Carr. 
she wanted to tell him what Mr. Stone had said about the beauty charm and... You said Mr. Loria would meet us at the station, Ari. You put me on the train so quickly I had no chance to speak. Where is he? Not the Cairo station, my lady. The station at Bedrazane. Where is that? Where we are going? We alight there to see the ruins of Memphis and the pyramids of Saqqara. Pauline looked puzzled, but said no more, and sat silently wrapped in her own thoughts, now of stone, now of car, and again of herself. At Bedrazane they left the train. Pauline looked anxiously around, but saw nothing of her cousin. "'I do not see him,' said Ari gravely, meeting her inquiring glance. "'But I obey his orders. He said if he not be here, we go to the desert to meet him.' "'To the desert? How? Where?' "'This way.' Here are our carts. Ari led the way to where two sand carts stood waiting, evidently for them. They were a little like English dog carts and drawn by desert horses. You take that one, Miss Stuart, and I this, directed Ari, standing with outstretched hand like a commanding officer. Bewildered, but knowing the responsibility of Carr's servant, Pauline got into the cart he indicated. She did not at all like the looks of the gaunt black moor who drove her, but thought best to say nothing. She had learned never to show fear of the native servants, and she held her head high and gave the driver only a haughty stare. Ari, after she was arranged for, sprang into the other cart and they set off. The road was through the village, through palm groves, past large expanses of water, and at last through desert wastes among foothills that quickly cut off the view of the road just traversed. Pauline's cart was ahead of the other, and looking back she could not see the other one in which Ari rode. A strange feeling began to creep into her heart. Covertly she glanced at her driver. The hard, bony face was not turned her way, but she had an uncanny sense that the man was grinning at her. Sternly she bade him stop and wait for the other cart. No Inglese, he rejoined with a dogged expression on his ugly countenance. I command you, and Pauline laid hold of his arm. I insist that you stop. No Inglese he repeated, and now he gave her a distinctly impudent look and spurred the horse to faster pace. Pauline considered. She was frightened beyond words to express, but she knew she must not show fear. Haughtily she held her proud little head aloft and tried to think what was best to do. Something was wrong that she knew, but whether it was Ari who was at fault or this dreadful man beside her, or, or, she stifled back the thought of Loria. He would save her, she knew he would, cried her worried brain, but in her heart was black doubt. All the unadmitted fear she had known of late, all the repressed suspicions, all the insistent doubts, these came flocking, clamoring for recognition. On they went, where they might be she had no idea. Nothing could be seen but the never-ending hills, not high, but of sufficient height to cut off all view of anything but their sandy slopes. Miles and miles they traversed. The sun was under a cloud, and Pauline had no knowledge of the direction they were taking. But from the man's grim stony face and cruel eyes, she knew she was in dreadful, even desperate danger. Courageously, she insisted over and over that they stop. The reply was only a shaken head and a reassertion that English was an unknown tongue. This Pauline knew to be a lie from his intelligent expression at her words. At last, desperately trying to control her trembling hands, she offered her purse if he would stop. To her surprise he consented, 
and jerked his horse to a standstill. Pauline handed over the purse, and the driver got out of the cart, indicating by gestures that she should also alight and rest herself. The cart was small, and the ride had been uncomfortable, so after a moment's thought, Pauline jumped out. She reasoned that the man having her money had no desire to prolong the trip, and in a moment they would go back to Bedrasheyn. Often had she heard of these robberies, and she felt that, cupidity satisfied, she had little to fear. But no sooner was she on the ground than the moor sprang again into his cart, and whipping up his horse sped away across the desert sand, and in a minute rounded a hill and was out of sight. Pauline looked after him an instant, and then, realizing to the uttermost what it meant, that she was abandoned to her fate in a trackless desert, fell in a little heap on the sands and fainted away. It was about eleven o'clock on the morning of that same day that Carloria went to Shepherd's Hotel and asked for Fleming Stone. The two men met and eyed each other appraisingly. There was no light chat, each was of serious face and in grave mood. Loria spoke first after the short greeting. I have a telegram from my cousin, Miss Stewart, he said, drawing a paper from his pocket. I know why you are here, Mr. Stone, and I think best to show you this. Frankly, I am glad of it. Stone took the message and read. I have run away again. I am afraid of F.S. Don't try to find me. I am all right, and I will communicate with you after he goes back to U.S. I positively will not make my whereabouts known as long as he is in Cairo. Don't worry. Polly. We may as well be honest with one another, Loria went on. I gather from your presence here that you know my cousin is guilty of the death of her aunt. But you don't know. You can't know what that poor girl had to put up with. I can't blame her that in a moment of, really of temporary insanity, she let herself be tempted. I'm sorry to cut short this interview, Mr. Loria, said Stone in his quiet way. But truly, I have a most important engagement just now. If I could see you, say, this evening and talk these things over by ourselves. Surely, Mr. Stone, I must return to my work tomorrow, but I'll see you tonight. Will you come to my place? Yes, I will. About nine. Nine it is. And Loria swung away as Fleming Stone turned and hastened into the hotel. Straight to Mrs. MacDonald he went and asked where Pauline was. She went to visit Memphis in Saqqara with her cousin, said the smiling chaperone. That is, she went with her cousin's dragoman, and Mr. Loria met them at Bedrashin. Oh, did he? Now listen, Mrs. MacDonald. Miss Stewart is in danger. I am sure of this. I am going to her aid, but I may not— Stone choked. I may not succeed soon. Tell me of this dragoman. What does he look like? Graphically, Mrs. MacDonald described the statuesque Ari, and almost before she stopped speaking, Stone was flying along the corridor, down the stairs, and out the door. He caught a train to Bedrashin, and the first person he bumped into at the little station was Ari himself, waiting for the train to Cairo. Fleming Stone went straight to the point. Look here, Ari, he said to the astonished Arab, who had never seen him before. What have you done with Miss Stewart? For once, the phlegmatic Arab was caught off his guard. What do you mean? he stammered. I have not seen her today. Don't lie to me. And Stone gave him a look that cowed him. Now listen. You're in Mr. Loria's pay. All right. He paid you well for the job you've just done. Now I'll pay you twice, three times as well to undo it. Moreover, I'll inform you straight that you'll never work for Mr. Loria again. 
He's a villain, a wicked man. Take my advice, Ari, give him up and come over to me. By so doing, you'll not only escape punishment for your work today, but get a fresh start toward a good position. I don't believe you're a bad man at heart, Ari. At least I don't believe you'll continue to be if you're better paid to be good. Stone was right about this, and the talk ended in another expedition of two sand carts into the desert, Adi in one with a native driver, Stone alone in the other driving himself. Adi's cart was driven by the same moor that had driven Pauline only two or three hours before. Stone followed them, the wicked driver easily bought over to betray the place where he had left Pauline. And there they found her. Crouched at the base of a small hill, worn out by weeping and despair, racked by fright and terror, she had fallen into a fitful slumber from sheer exhaustion. Jumping from his cart, Stone waved the others back and went to her. On her face were traces of tears. Her gloves and handkerchief were torn in strips by her agonized frenzies. Her shoulders were huddled as if in frantic fear, and her face was drawn and pinched with anguish. But in spite of all this, Stone thought he had never seen her look so beautiful. Stepping nearer, he lifted her to her feet, and unheeding the observers, he clasped her closely in his arms and whispered endearing words. Pauline, her eyes still closed, murmured, It's only a dream. I must not wake. I must not. No dream, darling, said the strong, glad voice in her ear. Does this seem like a dream? And his lips met hers in a long, close kiss. Then her eyes opened, wondering, and lest she should faint from very joy, Stone carried her to the cart and placed her in it. Jumping in beside her, he ordered the other cart to lead, and they started back. Neither Pauline nor Stone ever forgot that ride. At first she was content to ask no questions, happy in his nearness and her own rescue from an awful fate. But later she inquired about Loria. "'You must know the truth soon, dearest,' said Stone gently. "'So I'll tell you, in part now. "'Your cousin is a wicked man, Pauline, "'and you must grasp this fact before I go on.' "'Car, wicked!' "'And Pauline paled and trembled as if struck with a sudden blow. "'Yes, it was his hand, his will, "'that sent you to be lost in the desert. "'He showed me a false telegram saying you had run away from me.' "'What?' Oh, I can't believe it. Well, don't try now. And Stone smiled at her. It's all I can do to manage this fiery steed without trying to tell you unbelievable things at the same time. Let me tell you something more easy of credulity. Pauline's smile was permission, and Stone had no difficulty in convincing her of certain self-evident truths. By the time the trio reached Cairo, Adi was as staunch a follower and as true a slave of Fleming Stone as he had been of Carrington Loria. At Stone's direction, he returned to his former master, for the present, and gave no hint of the later development of the kidnapping scheme. All went off as planned, said Loria, secure in his servant's fidelity. Yes, master, answered the devoted trustee, and Loria said no more on the subject. That evening, when Fleming Stone went to Carloria's rooms, he was accompanied by Pauline and the Englishman Pitts. Loria started at sight of his cousin, but quickly recovered his poise and jauntily asked her where she had come from. No place like Cairo for me, she replied in the same light tone, and they all sat down in Loria's den. More company than I expected, he said as he bustled about, seating them. 
Ari, another chair. Ari obeyed the request and then softly left the room. Mr. Loria, said Stone directly, there is no use wasting words. We are here to accuse you of the murder of your aunt and the attempted murder of your cousin. Carl Loria's face blanched, but he tried to put on a bold front. What do you mean by this nonsense? Is it a joke? By no means. I have all the proofs of your crimes, and I ask you if you will confess here or to the police. Friend Pitts, I believe, is connected with the police. And Loria laughed grimly. Yes, he is. Have you anything to say? Only to deny your accusations. Except that it's too absurd even to deny such foolish talk. What do you mean, anyway? That you poisoned Miss Lucy Carrington, willfully and purposely, by sending her a dose of powdered aconite, under the pretense of its being a beauty charm, that would bring fairness and youth to her plain face. Carl Loria's jaw dropped. He looked at Stone as if at something supernatural. What? he stammered. You did it to get her money now, to go on with your work in the bed of the Nile. Then, in order to get your cousin's share of the fortune, you sent her away to die in the desert, having first induced her to will you her money. <laughs> laughed Loria feebly. Poor joke, Stone, pretty poor joke, I say. Murdered my own aunt. Not much I didn't. Carl Loria, listen. Impressively, Stone held up his finger to adjure silence, and at the same time he bent on Loria a glance of accusation that made him cringe. But, fascinated, he stared into Stone's eyes, and in the death-like silence came a voice, the voice of Lucy Carrington, in a burst of ringing laughter. Loria's eyes seemed to start from his head, and the sweat gathered in great drops on his forehead as the voice of his aunt spoke. This song is one of Carr's favorites, they heard distinctly. I'll sing it for him. Then, in Miss Lucy's high, clear notes, came the song, Oh, believe me, if all those endearing young charms. Before the last strains came, Loria was raving like a maniac. He had never heard of the phonograph records of his aunt's songs, for they had meant to surprise him with them on his next trip home. Have mercy, he cried. Stop her. Oh, my God, what does it all mean? Confess, ordered Fleming Stone. I will confess, I do confess. I did send her the powder, just as you say. I wrote her to dress up like Cleopatra and put on her pearls and scarabs and fasten an asp, a paper one, at her throat, and take the stuff, and it would cause Cleopatra's beauty to come to her. I told her to hold in her hand something belonging to the man she loved. It was a great scheme, a fine scheme. Loria was babbling insanely now. I don't see how anyone ever found out. I was so careful. I made her promise to burn all my notes and letters about it before I would send the powder. Who suspected it? I planned everything so carefully, so carefully. Made her promise to burn everything, everything. Letters of instruction, powder papers. Everything must be burned, I said. Everything. And she said, yes, Carr, everything. Over and over I wrote it. Told her that if she left anything unburnt, the charm wouldn't work, and it didn't. Ha ha! With a demoniac chuckle, it didn't. Take me away, I can't stand it, moaned Pauline. Again there was a silence. The phonograph had ceased. Loria sat with his head fallen forward on his hands at his table, 
He was still, and Stone wondered if he were alive. Then suddenly he lifted his head and cried out, Yes, I did it, because I was crazy, wild over my Nile scheme. Ah, oh, that wonderful work! It will never be done now. When I heard Stone was here, I knew it was all up. I planned to lose Polly for a time. Not forever, no, not forever. I would have found her some day. Some day. All dead in the desert. All dead. Pauline fainted and Stone flew to her side. But in a moment she revived and he begged her to go home. She consented and Audie, dependable now, took her to the hotel. Fleming Stone and Mr. Pitts attempted to get Loria to calm down and talk more coherently. Shortly he did so. He gave a full account of all the details of his crime, and though he denied the intention of leaving Pauline to die in the desert, his word was not believed by the two listeners. Finally he rose and walked across the room. You see, he said a little wearily, but quite sane now, I've a bad streak in me. My father was a Spaniard and he killed his own uncle. The Loria line is a series of criminals. Aunt Lucy never knew this, for my parents lived always abroad. But blood will tell. And my father, after he killed my uncle, followed it up by taking his own life. Like this. Though Stone caught the gesture and sprang to prevent it, Loria was too quick for him. He had snatched a dagger from the table and plunged it into his heart. Both men leaped at him, but it was all over in an instant. Carl Loria had himself dealt the punishment for his crimes. Perhaps it's as well, said Stone musingly. A trial and all that would have been awful for his cousin and the family connections. Now the matter can be disposed of with far less notoriety and publicity. Yes, agreed Pitts. Fleming Stone waited till morning to tell Pauline of her cousin's death. She was wide-eyed and pathetically sad, but composed. It is all so dreadful, she said. But Fleming, I knew it before I left New York. I didn't know it exactly but I felt sure it must be so, and I had to come here to see. Then I found Carr so gay and light-hearted I thought I must be mistaken, and I was glad, too. Then when you came, I couldn't make up my mind whether you suspected Carr or whether— Whether I came only to see you, supplied Stone. It was both, dear. What made you think of Carr in the first place? "'Because there was no real evidence against anyone else, "'though the police were making things dangerous for you, my little girl.' "'Stone held her close, as if even yet there might be a hint of danger. "'And I made Miss Frayne confess that she didn't really see you leave your aunt's room that night, "'though she did honestly think that you were in there, and your aunt was talking to you. "'Nor you didn't see her actually leaving the room, did you?' "'I only saw her with her hand on the doorknob. "'That was my first glimpse of her, and I thought she was coming out.' No, she thought of going in to apologize for her hasty temper. But hearing a voice, she paused, and so thrilling was the talk she overheard, she waited there some minutes. And then you thought of Carr? I sized up all the people who had motive, and Loria was surely in that category. And then I found the powder papers. Dear, those would have gone sorely against you if anyone else had discovered them. I resolved to wrest the secret from those papers, and I did. You did? How? By studying them for hours, with magnifying glasses and without. I found at last a clue, 
a possible clue in the fact that the edges of the papers had been cut with the curved blades of a pair of manicure scissors. I had Jane bring me all the manicure scissors in the house. Thank heaven your scissors didn't come within a mile of fitting the edges. You see, the papers were faintly scalloped on every edge. They must have been cut by the little curved blades, and rarely do two pairs of manicure scissors make the same scallop. The great discovery was that Miss Lucy's own scissors did fit them. This, dearest, would have pointed to you in the eyes of those determined police, for you had access to your aunt's toilet appointments. So did Anita or anybody in the house. Yes, but the police were hot on your track and ready to bend any hint your way. Oh, thank God that I could and did save you. Well, I further noticed that these scissors of Miss Carrington's were of a different pattern from the brushes and mirrors of her set. I went to Estelle, and she told me that the last time Carloria was at home he took a great fancy to his aunt's scissors and asked her to give them to him. She did, and when she tried to get another pair with that especial shaped blade, she could do so only by taking a different patterned handle. Do you wonder that I came straight over here? No, and the lovely eyes beamed with admiration of Stone's cleverness as well as with affection. Then last night I went to Loria's rooms and found not only the scissors that fitted exactly the scalloped papers, but found that the outside powder wrapper is undoubtedly a piece of his own writing paper. It is the same color and texture. Moreover, as he confessed it all, there is no further room for doubt. Another hint I had was when I found some of Loria's letters in your aunt's desk. Not their contents, they were just such as any affectionate nephew might write his aunt, but the chirography. You know, the letter from him that you showed me was typewritten, and I judged nothing from it. But his handwriting. I have studied the science, gave evidence of criminal traits, and I felt sure that I was on the right track. I brought the phonograph record to frighten him into confession, and it did. Irie started it in the next room at my signal. I might have known you would do it. When I came here, you know, I wrote and asked you to drop the case. I feared your investigations would lead to Carr. It had to be a question of his guilt or yours, returned Stone gravely. You don't know, darling, how near you were to arrest. Let's not think of it ever again. I'll engage to keep your dear mind occupied with pleasant thoughts all the rest of our life. You don't want to stay in Cairo, do you? Shall we try Algiers for a honeymoon spot? Or, if you don't want Africa at all, how about Greece? Or over to Algeciras? Whither away, my heart's dearest? Whither? Together. Then what matter whither? said Pauline, her eyes full of a love deep enough to drown the sorrows that had filled the past weeks. Together always, he responded, holding her to him. Always, my Pauline. End of chapters 23 and 24 End of The Curved Blades by Carolyn Wells Recorded by Céline Major.